I don't quite know what most authors do about their prefaces, but I can think of examples where a man writes the preface last. He finishes the book, and then when he's tied up all the threads, he puts at the start how the book was planned. A very good example of that comes to mind with Cardinal Newman, who wrote his great book on the development of doctrine and then wrote the preface in which he announced that he was going to be received into the Catholic Church. Well, that's for books, but now here on tapes, the same thing has happened to me, that I've given talks to a group of men, six or seven of, uh, tapes of them, and now alone, by myself, I write the preface to explain how the tapes came to be. I think it's important for you to note that when you hear the tapes, the sound itself may be different because now I'm alone where previously a large audience was sitting and responding. And I do think also perhaps you would like to know where I'm speaking because it is historical and it has therefore a considerable bearing on what I say. So I am here practically on the very site where John Wilkes Booth, after killing Lincoln, crossed the Potomac into Virginia, where he died. So I'm on the banks of the Potomac, and the lovely grass and the little hillocks all by the edge of the river are supposed to have been formed by the oyster shells which the Indians ate in quantities. To the left, as I look across this beautiful expanse, one looks towards St. Clement's Islands, and if you look right, you would eventually see Port Tobacco and then possibly Washington. So we, here we are in the most lovely piece of Maryland with a large expanse of water and beautiful trees and a beautiful house. I'm speaking here then, and there are 60 men here who have come to make a retreat. And when I spoke to them last two days, it was decided that I would talk about the history of Maryland as it affects myself and the people sitting here. You might well ask, why would an Englishman speak about Maryland, and what has an Englishman to offer which can't be found in the United States? Well, of course, I don't know anything so much about Maryland as many people here. It's very impressive to see among scholars the wonderful work that's been done studying the history of the state. But it is something that an Englishman can offer in the way of praise, which Americans perhaps can't. And here, where we're going to consider uh, the history of Maryland from the Catholic point of view, I think perhaps I myself as an Englishman can do something uh, which you cannot do. We are having the bicentennial of your great country, and therefore it's proper, I think, that an Englishman uh, should congratulate you on your history and should put in a word of praise for the wonderful people who worked here in previous centuries. I'm very much attached to Maryland for three reasons. First of all, my grandmother was born in Baltimore. She then married a Baltimore attorney, and after the Civil War, she left for Europe and married my grandfather. So though I never saw her, I was brought up as a heroine of Dixie and was very deeply attached to the South. My grandmother's name was Bessie Lee, and she was the first cousin of Robert E. Lee. 
That's one thing, and I have an aunt buried in Baltimore. Then secondly, I happen now, for the last six years, to live on a lot of little islands in the East Atlantic. Indeed, the Atlantic, for you, ends where my islands are. In the old days, when they raced the Atlantic, the liners, for the blue ribbons, uh, they timed the race from the Ambrose Lighthouse, New York, to the Bishop Lighthouse on the Isles of Scilly. So that's where I live, on the Isles of Scilly, 300 of them when the tide is out, 200 islands when the tide is in. And I've been there six years, and it is interesting for me, uh, in connection with Maryland, because, as I tell later in the tapes, the first, the Ark and the Dove, when it set out in 1633 for Chesapeake Bay, the two little ships came down the channel, and when they got to my islands, there was a terrible storm. And so the, the Ark, which was a big boat, went on, but the little pinnace, the Dove, had to take shelter where I now live. And so, therefore, I feel very much akin with the people who in those early days with such courage faced the enormous Atlantic storms. In my garden on my islands, I have a plaque commemorating the Ark and the Dove as they set out. But the third and most moving point for me um, is that I am an English Jesuit and that it was my own colleagues and the Catholics of England that came to Chesapeake Bay first. And all the marvelous things that were done here were done by people from the same stock as myself. And so I do honestly believe that we did a great work here in Maryland and have a, some kind of share in your bicentennial. When I talked to the men, and when I talked, I should say, to the men in my tapes, I made a point with them that they should read the Acts of the Apostles. Because when you read the Acts of the Apostles, you come across one very vital feature which so few people today recognize. We think of Jesus our Lord and what good he did, and people love Jesus, and we have Jesus Superstar, etc. Then you get people who follow the Sermon on the Mount. You get people who love the story of the crucifixion, or indeed of the resurrection, and Easter Sunday is supposed to be the great day of the year. But I can't help feeling that we are missing the whole point. The greatest thing that our Lord Jesus Christ did when he came into the world was to found the church. That after all, his death on Calvary, his resurrection, when he gave the apostles power to forgive sins, these were all paving stones up to the moment when his spirit came into the apostles as they sat with Mary in the upper room. So the greatest thing he ever did was to found the church. And if you read the Acts of the Apostles slowly, you begin to realize the structure of the church. It's very fashionable today to say we don't want structure and we just want Jesus alone. But if he was in the room, if he came in here now, the first thing he would say to you is, don't uh, have me, have my church. Because after all, the church, though fallible and made up of men, is indeed the extension of his life down the ages. After all, he lived historically at one particular epoch. But his life and the sacraments and the whole of the thing he came to give mankind has gone on century by century, and we find it then in the 16th century and the period that interests me most. So therefore, to the men sitting in the chapel, I had to say to them, read the Acts and follow how the church started. 
because no amount of emotion or love for Jesus himself or for his mother compares to belonging to the organization that he established at so great cost. And therefore, that is the point when you hear me say to the men, now read the Acts, I'm really trying to make them read the story of the first cycle of Christianity, which is repeated century after century with new men. You and I today can make the church viable in the 20th century, just as the men I talk about on these tapes made it viable in the 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries. So that's the point that I was trying to put over to the men first. And if you hear me say, well, keep silence and kneel down and we'll do this tomorrow, you need not be afraid of it. There's nothing very alarming. They were sitting in front of me and we were simply stressing that whatever we talk about in these tapes has its beginnings in the Acts of the Apostles themselves. Secondly, of course, when I'm talking, I mention names. I'll mention people, fathers and priests or somebody who are in here. I read out a note which somebody pushed under my door last night. Well, we could have cut that out on the tapes, but I have a funny feeling that it's these small things that will make the story alive. So we, I cut nothing out. The, the tapes are simply going to be edited so as to make sure they take the right time, and they will uh, tell you why I love Maryland because I don't want to anticipate here what I've already said, uh, if that's Irish, but I uh, do want to emphasize that it was English people, persecuted Catholics, who suffered so much in their own country, who first came here to get away from persecution, that they landed here in great uh, danger and sorrow, and many of them died young, and they had a very hard life, and you'll see over the centuries this wonderful thing of the church developing as it did in the Acts of the Apostles. They began, as the Apostles began, gathering together in a small group with our Blessed Mother to get strength. They relied on our Lord's grace in order to achieve here in Maryland, and indeed in America, what St. Paul and the others achieved in Palestine and in Asia Minor. So therefore, that is the idea of the tapes. I could have written a script, indeed I wrote several rough ones, I could have written a script that was word perfect and given it out to you with footnotes like a scholarly work. But after all, that's not what we were trying to do. I spoke to the men standing up at a lectern in the chapel with no reference books and speaking largely from memory. Why I myself am so interested in the whole thing is that I had to write the history of the English Jesuits from the time they came to England in 1580 until today. And reading through all the letters and reading through all that happened, I came across the story of Maryland, how the voyage was planned, why two Jesuits went with it, what they wanted to do when they got there, and then the correspondence of very brave men living all in, in the forest, miles from each other, and the hard work that went into the very poor results in the first centuries. But uh, as our Lord showed in the Acts and in the Church, when, once you have grace, gradually and slowly everything grows, just as in the parable of the sower. And so all those men and women who suffered for their faith in Britain and all those who suffered for their faith and lived in poverty in early Maryland, though they saw no results themselves, we can see the results now. Because when America became independent, 
and, and now you're celebrating the bicentennial. It was from Baltimore, with all the hard work of Maryland behind it, that the great American church grew. And so we watch a very interesting thing often repeated in the gospel that one person sows and another reaps. So I was just speaking, and if I've made a few mistakes in history, I don't mean to. I checked some dates and I had some quotations, but on the whole I was speaking from the memory of the many years I spent studying the history of the English Jesuits. There I met Father White, and there I met uh, John Carroll and Mother Seton, etc., and that's why the tapes are really from my house. I, we thought that whether these tapes are played in Maryland or whether they're played in Chicago or whether they're played in California, that the story is so simple, and anyone who loves the church will understand the situation in which I spoke, so that I think I may be accurate, and at least I give an honest opinion which was collected with much hard work. So you'll see as the tapes go on and you'll hear laughter and you may hear things you don't understand, but by and large it's nicer to let, hand on to you exactly as it happened than doctor it and edit it so that it turns into a kind of, um, um, sort of egghead story. With one or two small warnings to give you, uh, we can start then hearing what I um, have said to the men. First of all, I would like to stress that I am speaking to you about Roman Catholics, my own faith, and therefore it may sound sometimes as though I was, uh, was speaking with disrespect of other creeds. That isn't so. Or clearly, the Pilgrim Fathers, who were Puritans, tell the story from the Puritan point of view, and the Episcopalians in Virginia, they tell their story from their point of view, and I'm only speaking about the source books that I personally read. But there's obviously not only no question of uh, trying to introduce any bitterness into what happened in the past, but indeed, in the case of Maryland, a great sweetness ought to be instilled, because Maryland, of all the colonies, was the very first one that allowed tolerance. And I do hope you'll find, as the tapes go on, that the friendship between the Episcopalians and ourselves grew and indeed, towards the end, we have a tape of the two bishops in the same boat. One was a Roman Catholic and the other Episcopalian. So therefore, we have a right, all of us, to be proud of our own history. Uh, but it would be sad in these days if such pride would turn to bitterness when talking about the other side. Again, when I'm a Catholic priest speaking about my own order, the Jesuits, so much hated and feared in the past and so maligned, that it might seem as though I was suggesting that only the Jesuits ever did anything worthwhile. They were accused of that very spirit in their history. So that isn't true. I fully accept what the Franciscans did coming up from Mexico and in California. One's fully aware of what was achieved by the Benedictines, who after all converted practically the whole of Europe long before the Jesuits were ever heard of. One is aware of the work done by sisters. It wasn't all done by the Jesuits. So if that impression was given, it's only because it happens that the Jesuits were alone in Maryland for 200 years and that everything that was done there, in a way, came from them. So that's the first point I think we ought to be warned about. Another thing is at the sources, and here clearly I can't quote all my sources because I stand at a lectern in the chapel without books. But a lot of it comes from private letters that I read in the various archives, 
And it comes from enormous number of sources. For example, the great history of the Jesuits in North America by Father Thomas Hughes. I would like to pay tribute to him, a Maryland man, now dead, but he did publish the whole story, and he also published two volumes of documents which provide a great deal of information which I could not otherwise have obtained. So that's how we'll start. And now I would like just perhaps at the end of our introduction, my preface, to suggest that you and I get onto the ark as it sailed from the Isle of Wight in 1633 and ran into the storm in the Atlantic. This narrative was described by one of the people on board, and it is indeed a classic of travel in the early 17th century. And so I won't read it all, but it does make an interesting passage. And then my little islands are mentioned when the pinnace, the dove, had to take shelter. So we get the account, I take it up when they're coming down the channel, and you may feel, as I do, that it's a very vivid account which certainly makes us understand the troubles they had. Now, on Sunday the 24th and Monday the 25th of November, we had fair sailing all the time until evening. But presently, the wind getting round to the north, such a terrible storm arose that the merchant ship I spoke of from London, being driven back on her course, returned to England and reached a harbour much resorted to among the Pomonians. Those on board our pinnace also began to lose confidence in her strength, as she was a vessel of only 40 tons burden, and sailing near warned us that if they apprehended shipwreck, they would signal by hanging out lights from the masthead. We, meanwhile, sailed on in our strong ship of 400 tons, a better could not be built of wood and iron. We had a very skillful captain, and so he was given the choice of either returning to England or keeping on struggling with the winds. If he yielded to these, the Irish shore close by awaited us, which is noted for its hidden rocks and frequent shipwrecks. Nevertheless, his bold spirit and his desire to test the strength of the new ship, which he had then managed for the first time, prevailed with the captain. He resolved to try the sea, although he confessed that it was the more dangerous on account of being so narrow. The danger, in truth, was near at hand, for the winds increased and the sea growing more boisterous, we could see the pinnace in the distance showing two lights at her masthead. Then, indeed, we thought it was all over with her and that she had been swallowed up in the deep whirlpools. For in a moment she had passed out of sight and no news of her reached us for six months afterwards. Accordingly, we were all of us certain the pinnace had been lost. Yet God had better things in store for us, for the fact was that finding herself no match for the violence of the waves, she had avoided the Virginian Ocean, with which we were already contending, by returning to England to the Isles of Scilly and making a fresh start from thence. In company with the dragon, she overtook us, as we shall relate, at a large harbour in the Antilles. And thus God, who oversees the smallest things, guided, protected, and took care of that little vessel. So that little vessel came into my islands, and then it picked up with the dragon, and so it got across to Chesapeake Bay almost as quickly as the more superior ark. Well, I so very much hope that hearing that passage read out 
uh, from the narrative of the voyage of the Ark and the Dove, you will sense some of the bravery that was endured by the people of yesteryear. We know who are on, on the ship. We have the names of many of the people who set out. It's striking to note that they were about half Roman Catholic and half Episcopalian. We noticed that there were certain women aboard, usually the wives of one or two of the men, and there were some children. And then we see the names of the people traveling on board, old English names which you can find in the churchyards of Britain, on the stones over tombs, and you can find them here in Maryland. I notice people like Ashton, and you get very common, Darrell and Diggs, and you get a whole string of men, a man called Bryant, who was killed by a tree when they landed in Maryland, and then there was another man who was shot while he was at Lookout Point. They were very ordinary, simple people, and they were going into a completely new world with no particular safety or safeguards, and without sufficient supplies maybe of food. It was a tremendous risk for the first year, and, and uh, therefore the crossing, which for them took four months, all cr cramped together in a boat, uh, that that in itself was an achievement. The Jesuits, of course, and most missionaries, had a large part in this seafaring world. I notice another Englishman who sailed from Lisbon to go to India, how he wrote another classical account of the terrible deaths on the way and of scurvy, so that the gums in people's mouths came right down and they bit them while they ate. I think uh, Thomas Stevens, another Jesuit, said how lucky they were that only some 90 people died on the voyage. So it was a very brave moment when you set out, even in a very hardy boat like the Ark, and still more in the pinnace, to go right across the Atlantic. Today I wonder, we have time so full, we might well wonder what they did in the boats. They had no television, no lights, no newspapers, all the things that we regard as essential. And yet they went, Puritans and Episcopalians and Catholics and missionaries. So the story we tell will come when the Ark eventually arrives in Chesapeake Bay and they get out. But before we get onto the Ark, we want to think what happened to those men and why they wanted to leave their country and start again in another world. So therefore, the talks that I have given to the men uh, trace the story of how those men came together, who paid for the journey, what they took with them, and what they wanted to do when they reached the other side. It is an inspiring story, I think, and as you watch it cross the centuries with all the ups and downs and persecutions, eventually ending in a complete success. In the case of the Maryland Catholics, it did end with them being ready 200 years later when America was independent to play a very full part from the very first years of the beginning of your great republic. And so as an Englishman, I feel proud of that, that though we may have done other things to you which were harmful, we at least did gave you the best thing possible, that we gave you the Catholic faith.